Hello and welcome to Policy Matters. We are Franz Boscher and Matt Dixon. And today we're talking to Professor Alex Bryson. He's a professor of quantitative social sciences at the University of College London. And we're going to be talking about sports economics. Alex, you're a labor economist and you specialize mostly in employment relations. And I know you've done a lot of work on unions, work satisfaction, performance pay, and all this kind of stuff. Very interesting. But today we're going to be talking about sports economics. So I guess my first question is, what exactly is sports economics and why is it useful? Sports economics is like any other flavor of economics, um, but it has some special features. Um, sports are a little bit different from any other economic activities. So you might be concerned about your ability to extrapolate from things that you find in sports to the outside world. But the data is a really big attraction. You see more of what's going on in terms of the activities of principals and agents, contracts, preferences of customers, the whole range of contractual engagements. And we see this in the data. We have linked employer-employee data for a whole industry. And crucially for a labor economist, we have a time-varying uh, labor productivity. Oh, well, we we see that. for the individual and we see them interacting with others playing in a team oftentimes. Not always, of course, not all sports is team oriented. So there are real attractions there and that allows you to test empirically key propositions from economic theory about the operation of labor markets. So it's not just a case of okay, this is quite cool, we love sports, we can just crunch the numbers. There's actual, you're going to take something from analysing the sports data and then use that to provide insight for uh, the labour market or some, some other aspect of, of economics. That's one flavour of sports economics and it's a flavour I particularly like but there's room for the other aspect to which you allude, namely having fun with data, yeah. dealing with issues that some of us, and speaking as a Leeds United fan, can't get enough of, you know, why did this happen? Why yeah. can I do better than my manager and all the rest <laughs> of it? And so there is a playfulness about some sports economics, but I think there's a serious point here for economists generally who might be yeah. thinking about wanting to engage in doing this work. You don't really want the whole sub-discipline to be dominated by the fun aspect and disconnected from, well, what can we learn about mm. fundamentals in economics? I mean, there's another third side, arguably, which is that sports should be treated seriously in its own right. Why? Because it's a large industry. Mm. A lot of money is spent by consumers and by society. It could be welfare enhancing up to a point, although if, of course, there are other benefits of sport, physical activity and its links to health. Yeah. Mm. So there are a whole range of things you can do in yeah. this sphere we call sports economics. Um, but I do think there is a responsibility for labor economists to engage seriously with broader issues about um, what you can learn from the application of data analysis and the testing of fundamental theory in a sports setting yeah. using the special features of sports data to make um, get insights that you that would otherwise elude you normally with standard data. Now, in doing so, one thing one needs to bear in mind is that sports is different in some fundamental ways. So, for example, um, most football teams might be win maximizing; they might not be profit maximizing. Football teams don't die in the same way as firms in a standard market 
often as a, as a Leeds United fan, you can <laughs> you can attest to that. I can attest to <laughs> I've that. Come close at times, but I mean, but my my co-author and and, and colleague Stefan Zamanski's done a lot of work on on the bankruptcy of football right. clubs, and then they reinvent themselves. Yeah. Of course, in the United States, in many sports settings, there's no relegation. So the whole idea about firm survival is somewhat different. And, of course, crucially, what's the value of sports as an entertainment? It's partly a function of competitive balance between the teams. So there's a sort of symbiosis between the competitors. The product is a joint production by the home team and the away team, for example. And so this idea that you want one set of firms to go kill off the other is actually going to potentially jeopardise the value of their joint production. So there are a whole range of reasons why you need to think very seriously about the extent to which you can extrapolate from sports economics to to wider questions around economics. And so it's incumbent upon the analyst and the author to identify the extent to which you can do so, and if not, why not? Well, let's have a, let's have a look at a more specific example. I, I know that in my own sort of teaching life, I, I have come across sports economic often uh, within the context of discrimination. Yes. Uh, and that is, of course, uh, discrimination in many countries. Most countries tends to be illegal. We think it happens, but of course, gathering data on this, good data is really, really hard if you know people are hiding it uh, in case they're doing it. So that can be really difficult. And this is really where sports economics, because you can act sort of almost like a god looking inside this sort of ecosystem, inside this, univ- you know, inside this universe w- with data, where, where we can sort of you know, make real contributions You're to the literature. Spot lit- on, France. Yeah. So, so if we look at to the outside world, what do we know about racial discrimination in aspects of the labour market? The most recent, um, I think it was done by Anthony Heath at Nuffield College, Oxford, a, an audit study on hiring discrimination on the grounds of race mm. in the UK. What do they find? Lo and behold, no difference going back, comparing to similar studies, doing the same thing many decades. Meanwhile, back in sports economics, we discover um, a set of papers, and they are are reviewed by Larry Kahn recently, that find some indications of a reduction in racial discrimination over time in sports hiring and wages. Mm. The best paper in sports economics, in my view, by a very long way, is an American Economic Review paper of 2002 by Goff and Tolleson, which looks at racial integration in professional baseball and basketball since the early 20th century. Mm. It treats racial, dis- ra- the racial composition of a team as a technology, uh, a technology that's potentially productivity enhancing, but in the presence of discrimination, teams will choose a suboptimal mix of players and in particular will discriminate discriminate against the marginal black player relative to the marginal white player. Mm. As a consequence, when you observe a team and you observe their time-varying productivity at the level of an individual, you will find that a black player has to be somewhat better than the marginal white player to get in the team, to be picked for the team, to have extra minutes in the game. And they find this over a long period of time. But lo and behold, by the 1980s, that has disappeared. 
the marginal white and the marginal black pair have similar productivity, at which point you can be clear that there's no discrimination operating yeah. in those two sports. The, the paper is a, a little piece of genius because they then ask the next question is, well, who were the first movers in the adoption of this technology? Was it, A, the really bad teams who were so bad they had no option other than to overcome what's either statistical or taste-based discrimination and start to employ black players? Or was it the good teams that were good in so many dimensions they saw the value of choosing these players who were being left out in the cold. My recollection is Don't that it's the latter. We want to know. It's we want to know what's the answer. It's the latter. It was the good teams that moved first. Right. Now, we've revisited that issue with different data, uh, which combines the real world of the premiership football players for whom we have optotype statistics, mm. each player's uh, full data on their productivity and their race, um, with a virtual world, fantasy football, where people choose their teams in their bedrooms or wherever, in their lounge or in the pub. And the objective is you want to come top out of the three and a half million other people who also play fantasy football with, with the Premier League in this country. So what you have here is... Three and a half million pseudo managers. Absolutely right. So they're the employers. Right? They're so the employers. Got three and a half million employers. They're their employers, and they have to fill fifteen slots each week, and then choose their team from that. What's beautiful about our setting for this paper is that the firms are identical. All teams start, or managers mm. start, with the same budget constraint. Mm. They can then choose real football players who play football in the real world, whose productivity they know with certainty and with zero cost of, uh, of, of obtaining that information, not only for the players in their own team, but for the whole industry. Yeah. And they then construct their team in a world, remember, where it's not illegal to discriminate yeah. right, in their bedrooms. And the question for us is, do those managers indulge a taste-based discrimination policy because we can discount statistical discrimination. Statistical discrimination occurs when you make decisions, labour market decisions about an individual based on your understanding of their group characteristics, yeah, which normally happens in the absence of information yeah. about their productivity. But we know perfectly what the productivity of, is of the players in this case. So we can discount that. We can also discount customer discrimination because in this case there are no customers and we can also discount co-worker behavioral discrimination because in this case that you're in your mm. fantasy chosen team there is no co-worker interaction so if there is any marginal discrimination and we look at hiring firing and picking your captain which we call promotion <laughs> between blacks and whites then it's going to be taste-based now, in the first paper that we did on this, which is published in Labour Economics, me and Arno Chevalier, we concluded that there was no taste-based discrimination. However, we didn't have the best data available. We had aggregate data week on week for all transfers occurring. Now, what we missed as a consequence is the marginal decisions of those three and a half million managers as they chose whether to hire or fire players at the margin. Now that we've got those data, 
bang, what do we discover? We discover there is taste-based discrimination in the sense, as Gary Becker predicted in the economics of discrimination in 1957, that at the margin, that taste-based discrimination will mean that any black player will have to be somewhat better than the equivalent white player to be hired, be better to, to, in order to avoid being fired, and be better in order to be picked as captain. So just to understand what you're saying, there's three and a half million people, mostly UK-based, I suspect, um, playing this game, and when they're faced with an equal white and non-white player, they tend to pick the white player. Correct. Which kind of... I mean, I'm just wondering if we sort of extrapolate this a little bit further, you know, and we take these three and a half million, we just convert them back to fans mm -hmm. into the real world. OK, well, I can tell you about the real world again with sports data. Yeah. Paper I did with um, Babatunde Barema and Rob Simmons, which actually focused it's Serie A data, it uh -huh. Italian professional football where the focus was on the payment of migrant workers. But nestled in that paper is an incredible finding about customer-based taste-based discrimination. So we have panel data for football teams in the Italian top league, and we have their points, how well they're performing, and we have the racial composition of the team. And what we discover is that the team's performance improves, is an increasing function of the proportion of uh, non-EU migrants who are predominantly non-white. So they're performing better on it. This is panel data within team over time. You find increasing performance as you bring in more of the non-EU migrants. However, what happens to the paying customers? Attendance falls. Despite the fact that the on-pitch product is improving, Wow. People are staying away. And that's even you've you've got control for, you know, what's going on in the economy. So it's not just people happened at that time to have less money in their pockets. Well, to, 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 yeah, to only up to a, a point, I would say. I mean, so we're looking. So what you're wondering about is the potential confounding effects of time varying unobservables. But they sh they would have to in order to, you know, confound yeah. this. I mean, be correlated probably with the proportion who are non-EU migrants. Quite technical here. <laughs> yeah, so that's quite technical. But bottom line is it certainly indicates to me that there are consumer preferences out there that are not blind to the race of, of, yeah. of the players playing. So there the is game. some truth to this whole thing then, because we see it in the news a lot uh, recently, um, you know, it's, you know, black football players in the Premier League saying, you know, they're being discriminated against and this hasn't gone away and there's all sorts of, you know, um, processes and drives to try and address this issue, but we it it appears to be quite clear in the data, not just in the UK but also in other countries that that does seem to be this element of, you know, yeah. yeah. So for my, to my oh, mind, the 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 role of the labour economist here is to mm. try and pin it down in data so that it's robust and incontrovertible, and then try and replicate these things across time and place to see if we can understand settings and scenarios in which perhaps there are things that, that induce a change in those behaviours. And I suspect that there would be heterogeneity in that result across countries and across time. So what we're seeing here, 
as a whole in terms of discrimination. Much of the literature in sports is indicating that there's been a reduction, certainly in terms of on-team choice of players. That's no surprise, really, because if you think of the money involved a lot of professional sports these days, the stakes or the costs of discriminating against top talent that may actually be black rather than white are quite considerable. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, for example, we see no discrimination in terms of time on the pitch and race. So it indicates to us that the coaches of teams at the moment are, are not engaged in that sort of behaviour. Yeah. So it's interesting just thinking about this, this fantasy football result that we find that these managers, these employers who are picking their team, do find some kind of taste-based discrimination. So for taking that out to the kind of labour market in general, that's a situation where you've got no interaction. So it's not like as an employer, you employ these people and you see them day to day. This is a situation where there's no... Uh, the yeah, th there's no right, interaction. Matt. I mean, the the implication might be, for example, let's let's because you're quite right. We should be thinking: what are the implications for the wider economy? Well, much of the literature on taste-based discrimination is around animus. the The fact that I'm prepared to pay a price in term uh, in order to avoid you because I don't like employing you, and that's actually. There's a physicality to that. And, mm. and yet in, in our setting, the in-the-bedroom fantasy football, there's no physical engagement. I mean, it's really a virtual world. Yeah. Uh, and so that could lead to a lower bound estimate, mm. conceivably. So for policy, we really need to think, well, this is operating almost. It could be an unconscious bias or it could be just, yeah, this this uh, operation of uh taste-based you know discrimination so in terms of employment law you know we need to be really stringent and really just aware of it and, and that's right so so i mean the bottom line here for the rest of economics is whilst there are many studies that engage with the issue of of labor market discrimination very very few of them are able to distinguish between the source of that discrimination statistical versus taste-based in particular. That's a fairly new literature in economics. It's growing, but it's quite hard to empirically engage with it. There are one or two really nice studies that do so. So, for example, there's a, a, a Goulden and Rouse paper on, on the um, hiring of orchestra, I think violinists or something, and, right. and there's one point where they introduce a curtain or a, bl a blind Right. Blind auditions, what happens? Women are more likely to be picked, you know, in the blind right. scenario. Isn't that like The Voice? The Voice, yeah. The Voice. It is very much <laughs> like The Voice, absolutely. The so, so, there, there are, so, so economists can engage with data in an imaginative fashion to deal with these issues. Yeah. But actually in sports, oftentimes we are very fortunate in being able to to know so much about what's going on because we observe so much of the labour market setting that's normally absent in, 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 in many studies. So sticking with sports, I know that you have another really interesting paper that sort of moves its direction more towards sort of employee relations, but um, the one about referees where you have this paper that shows, and I'm trying to draw the connection here to this sort of you know new gig economy, delivery drivers, that kind of thing, where when you have people moving from sort of uh, non-salaried contracts to salaried contracts. Yes. So at one point, referees were just being paid by you know per match. That's right, by the piece, as it were. Yeah. yeah. And then they were moved on to contracts where they were paid for the whole year. 
And your evidence suggests that actually that improves productivity. That's correct. Now, um, people would need to read the paper to understand why our measure of productivity in this case is all about reducing the number of yellow and red cards a referee uh, brandishes during a game. That's a complex bit of the paper. But the rest of the paper is very simple. It's a difference in difference estimator. You have a period in which people are paid by the piece, game per game, and then a subset of the referees in the Premier League shift to a a long-term contractual basis. Now, the theory that we're testing is the idea of career incentives for sorts of um, sorts of occupations where careers might potentially be important. A lot of the literature in economics focuses on financial incentives that are short-term, bonuses, incentive pay of one variety or another. And they often forget the work of Canis Prendergast focusing on and, and others focusing on career incentives, which is the idea that, you know, if you perform well over a period, you might see returns over the longer term in terms of acquiring a decent contract. And and you can see your way towards development and improvement in the longer run, something that would be very standard in the public sector, for example, yeah. where professionals are career-oriented and would not necessarily respond to short-term incentives if they do something good in the short term. Mm. So that was the idea. And lo and behold, we found in that particular case, though the movement onto longer term contracts was productivity enhancing for the referees. And it has been rolled out in the real world. Now, that is the that is the situation that 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 most of them face. Now, when it comes to the gig economy, that's an empirical question as to whether or not if you think that you've got workers who are working very short term, maybe in a zero hours oriented way. It's not clear to me how a career-oriented, longer contractual arrangement might be productivity enhancing rather than short-term incentives around meeting particular targets, delivery-type things within. Yeah, you know, thinking, it's, a, it's, it's an open question. I, I mean, think. it's interesting because that paper itself, the contract are, you know, they have certainty for a year, not for 10 years. So it's not like a lifelong contract. Uh, and then you can think about shirking all this kind of stuff. Here it's more, you know, I'm thinking, is there a kind of applicability to say, you know, does that evidence from sports economics and referees possibly translate to the Deliveroo driver where they might say, okay, you know, perhaps a month-by-month contract with some standard pay would really improve productivity and my pizza would stop being late. And uh, I, I uh, think that's a perfectly <laughs> reasonable way of thinking. And then your big challenge as an economist is to um, approach Deliveroo and try and persuade them to roll out, ideally in a random way, um, an alternative contractual set of arrangements. But the starting point, which is key, is theory. Mm. You've got to have some theoretical comprehension of what might work and what might be problematic or result in in unintended consequences in, in a particular setting and use that and then link it up to data that's that's uh, that's an amenable to, to data crunching that can actually shed light on those theories. One thing with the referees while we're talking about referees, I know it's not your paper, but um, as a you know football fan, we've all had that experience of thinking when your team is playing at home 
and you are desperate to get that equalising goal. Time. Yeah, Fergie time. There's that seems to be extra injury time yeah. when the home team yeah. is chasing a goal. Yeah. Whereas if they're if they're leading, and particularly if it's a mm. narrow lead, it mm. seems like oh, hold on, how two minutes? You know, where did that come from? Yeah. Like, how is that such short time? And but it's this not is... just in your head because that's exactly what Louis Garricano finds in his paper. That now this is a bit more behavioural economics, really. It's the idea that the referee who should be impartial, yeah. is actually subject to some social pressures. We know this. Amateur football referees, they've been talking about going on a national strike because of the fear they have of assault, both by players and indeed, and I know this is an ex-linesman for my son, uh, potentially assault parents. by parents. Yes. <laughs> so um, this social pressure is a real thing for officials in sports yeah. games. Um, and, and there are many papers on this sort of subject, um, including ones on discrimination, in fact, done by people like Justin Wolfers. But this Louis Garricano paper does indeed confirm that home teams get a shortening of overtime in scenarios where the game is close, but it's going to be to the advantage of the home team. And you can think, you know, that is, again, taking it to the policy world and the, the real world. How does this that is where someone is having to make a decision under huge kind of social pressures. And I don't know, I'm, I expect there's probably other kind of scenarios that we could think it's of where... It's really working for Parliament. It's not working for Parliament. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, but these kind of decisions where people are supposed to be impartial, but I guess when you've got 650 MPs shouting you down or, or yeah. you know, what, yeah. whatever it is... It's an unusual setting for a worker... Mm to be faced with so many other onlookers in real time judging ev everything that they're doing. But subjective judgments are crucial in work settings. The obvious one is the payment of merit pay. So where a manager is making choices about how much you're being paid based upon his or her assessment as your supervisor of your performance, there are opportunities there for the supervisor to discriminate, for example. That may not be social pressure, but it's the use of judgments that might not be wholly rational, uh, which can lead to outcomes for you as a worker that ideally in the world we, we might want to squeeze out. So again, the great joy of sports economics is the goldfish bowl scenario. We see everything going on in the game and we can make precise judgments about what the actors are doing. Um, ordinarily, we might be thinking of utility maximization in the standard way, but sometimes we might have some preferences that are a bit more behavioral yeah. that bring in things like social pressures and so on, as in the case of Garricano's mm. paper. I think we don't want to give the impression that you only care about uh, football. And so I just had one final uh, question I wanted to ask you about. Another one of your papers, which looked at baseball, uh, this paper with Kerry Paps, mm. um, and looking at incentive for effort within a team. Can you tell us a little bit about that paper? Yeah, this is um, this is possibly my fa favourite paper of, of the moment. Uh, essentially, we're looking at team production and the um, behaviour of workers within a team where their uh, efforts are potentially complementary. And the question for us is, to what extent is your effort affected by the effort of your peers? Now, in theory, it could go either way, in fact. We ordinarily think that if faced by 
really good peers, uh, we might perform better. Why? Well, um, there's a paper by Massimo Moretti in the American Economic Review on cash till workers, and they use the exogenous variance in the mix of workers arising from shift patterns to discover that when a really good till worker comes on, everybody else improves. The, right, now, why? Very difficult to tell from that paper why it is. It could be that there's learning, or it could be pressure. In our case, we specify, we use baseball, and we've got a very nice setup. Baseball Although it's a team outcome, it's not really a team game in the same way. It's a play-by-play, pitch-by-pitch. Pitcher throws a ball at you. You get three chances to hit it out the ground or just to get to first base, which is what we are looking at. And ultimately, the team gains runs, and whoever's got the most runs after nine innings is the winner. But in the play-by-play setting, it's a very individual effort decision but the actual effort choice is part going to be partly a function of where you are in the game how well you're performing and how well people prior to you in the innings were performing that is exogenously set at the beginning of the game right the order of the batting yeah now in a previous paper very well known paper by Gould and Winter they aggregated the data at the level of of whole games and they find big positive spillover effects that you do better getting to first base if you're surrounded by better peers we do it play by play within game and we find that's not the case there are there are tiny positive spillovers in fact we we look at the incentive effect when when there are financial incentives for the team and you as an individual to get to first base, that can induce improved performance. But actually, on balance, when you're surrounded by better players, you're more likely to actually free ride on their efforts rather than... It's a, basically, the idea is that, hey, we're already in a good position thanks to the guys in front of me. Uh, I can slack off a little Take bit. Easy. Yeah, and this is actually a challenge to most of economics. Mm. Why? Because actually there's quite a strong belief that there are positive spillovers of peers when they're good, when um, skills are complementary. We find that's not really the case. Question, big question, comes back to the beginning of this chat. To what extent can we extrapolate from a baseball setting to any other production function that might exist in the economy at large? That's a tough one. What settings seem to correspond in their key aspects to the sort of baseball setting that we're, that we're describing? Alex, thank you very much. It's clear to us that sports economics has a lot to say about not only sports, but also about the economy at large and, you know, what kind of policy decisions we might want to think about in terms of, you know, helping society along. Thank you very much for coming. This was Policy Matters. We were Franz Buscher and Matt Dixon. And we'll be back with more soon.